Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we welcome Managing Director at 60 Degree Capital, Yatong Lee, to discuss how the firm invests alongside some of the biggest names in venture. Yatong explains how the firm is able to invest from Series A to IPO and how his team is able to due diligence such a wide range of investment opportunities as a firm. Yatong explains how the current markets are impacting his firm's investment decisions and how they're analyzing later stage investment opportunities that are being written down 50%. Finally, we ask Yatong how their firm is able to be an LP in some of the greatest firms in the Valley while also being a direct co-investor and some of the biggest lessons they've learned from all the investments and funds they've invested over the last several years that other people should hear. But before we jump into this week's interview with Yatong Lee, we welcome back to the tank Anthony Mushantif to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Well, we're back again here, back-to-back sessions with Anthony Mushantif from RBC. Welcome back, Anthony. Nice to be back. You know, it's been uh, it's been a little crazy after all the SVB news that was happening around the markets. Now we've got some other news here with some of the later stage tech companies in Canada having to uh, suffer some uh, some fate that we didn't want to see happen this early in the year. But we saw Reno Run, uh, who had raised over 150 million from some big name investors like Tire Global, as well as a lot of Canadian firms, as well as BDC, unfortunately not being able to uh, stay afloat here and having to file for predator protection. So, you know, what are your thoughts on this one? And, and how should investors interpret this news when a company like this that was reportedly doing over $10 million a month in revenue, unfortunately had to file for, for essentially bankruptcy? First and foremost, I think the human element to this is terrible, right? I think you hate to see things like this, particularly with a company that for all intents and purposes, purposes as we understand, was executing well, was growing very rapidly and was basically doing everything right, but ultimately appears to have been the victim of its of its time in a sense. I think what's interesting to me on this one is it's not even so much the shift in the macro environment, but the velocity with which the shift happened caught the company flat-footed and they couldn't quite adjust quickly enough. I think the other piece there is you see and I, I'm sure many of your listeners would have seen the Globe article about it, the Sean Silkoff's Globe article about it. And it seems like what you know, whatever you can kind of surmise from that article, I think it's illustrative of investors getting really cold feet now on capital-intensive businesses and where they're willing to deploy capital and kind of, or we should say, redeploy capital. So it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate turn of events for sure. Yeah, I think that's a great point in terms of the capital uh, efficiency of businesses. And like, not all tech companies are built the same. You know, if a company had raised 150 million or something like they did, and they really did have $10 million of revenue a month, if they were really doing traditional SaaS margins of, you know, 70, 80%, you can really stay afloat for quite some time. But when you're running $10 million run rate a month, but your margins are maybe only 20%, that's when things start to get really hard. And, and that's what we're talking about here, which is like, yeah, you can see, you know, they were doing really good things on the top line. But as it starts to flow through, this thing is just sort of, you know, one foot uh, ahead of the other. It's not really making much progress, unfortunately, on the businesses. And so when you think about these hardware businesses or real world businesses, it's not as easy when the macro environment changes so quickly to stay afloat. But you got to think like, the terms they were getting uh, from these investors who were insiders or maybe uh, partially outsiders must have been getting pretty aggressive and having to see two term sheets kind of fall to the wayside. You know, what do you think really happened in that boardroom uh, at the 11th hour that just didn't allow this thing to stay afloat? I think we'll never know. What I will say, though, is it's, again, it's illustrative of the nuance of VC that's lost in the popular imagination. And the reality is that VC funding is largely contractual. And what goes into ownership stakes is highly, highly variable. And what ends up happening in many instances is you have a board of directors with competing interests because their liquidation waterfall doesn't look the same. They have different time horizons, different whatever. And so when you have a situation where, candidly, different investors are representing different interests, you can have a situation where those interests clash. And it seems like that's what that's what happened here, right? Because ultimately, and there's this philosophical distinction to be made that, you know, many startup founders don't think much about and candidly, many VCs don't think about. It's where exactly is the fiduciary duty endowed? Is it endowed to the fund that you're representing on the board of directors of a company? Or is your fiduciary duty to the corporation itself as abstracted from its shareholders? And I think most people would argue that it's the latter. And what seems to have happened here again, from the outside looking in, where you have a business that by all intents and purposes was executing, was growing, and was doing significant turnover, seems like there was a failure of governance here somewhere. And you would have liked to think that 
you know, you should, it should have been able to find some solution that would have avoided this fate. Yeah, that's a great point you make here about how, you know, VC funds, sometimes they're, you know, significant majority investors combined in a, in a business like this, but their job on the board of directors is to represent all of the shareholders of the business and not just the fund that they're sitting as a partner on. Uh, and that's often hard to sort of disconnect uh, when in these kind of situations happen. You know, you also got to think like, you know, how many people were turning their backs you know, only at the last minute versus all the way through the process where other ones were really trying to get everyone together. And you're right. The part about VC sort of to blame here for this, I don't think is really fair because everyone has responsibilities and they all have to answer to somebody. We have to answer to our LPs in the long term, but we have to support our founders in the short term and beyond. And so I think when the media labels this as like a breakdown of the investors turning their backs on the founders, I don't really like that. I kind of, I think that's a cop out here. I think there's a lot of finger pointing you can put on people. But at the end of the day, everyone has somebody to answer to. And so just to say that the investors, you know, screwed this whole thing up and the the company takes no responsibility, the founders take no responsibility. I mean, fuck, the, the investors are the ones who take all the risk, right? They're the ones losing all the money here. Yes, there are employees and stakeholders and founders that are obviously going to suffer as well. But, you know, the initial impact is right on the investor. So you got to accept and acknowledge that it wasn't like they're, they're running away scot-free. We'll see here, but it, it's a sign of the times, I think, of how some of these later stage companies with very high valuations, with a lot of funding, if their business models don't have a lot of maneuverability because of that margin issue, there's not a lot of room for error when uh, you're coming to market to, to raise some rescue capital, right? Totally. I mean, it, I think what you're saying is totally fair. And and. Laying blame nowhere. What's curious about this is it seems like no one quite blinked first, right? Like I'm used to someone blinking eventually and just British style diplomacy, right? Like you have different people with different interests and eventually you meet somewhere in the middle or one standard deviation from the middle. And for whatever reason, and I think this is probably a consequence of this economic environment where everyone's a little bit shell-shocked and everyone's trying to figure out where to redeploy and how to support their portfolios. And on top of that, you have some investors who are not purely financially minded, right? Like I think there's a a thread about you know more government type more government type investors, which is something that I've spoken about ad nauseum, who are not really financially driven in a in a pure sense, right? And so not only do you have divergent financial interests, you have divergent fundamental interests. And I think in this environment where no one blinked, the whole kind of thing came crashing down, and that's really it's really tough to see. It's crazy that there was no like break the glass kind of or this this is the break the glass kind of moment, and they actually did it. You would think someone would blink. You'd have to do a recap. You'd have to sort of do this rescue and things would just eventually climb back to hopefully a, a steady state, but they did not. And they ended up breaking the glass and just saying, rip the bandaid off. It's done. We're going to file for, you know, credit, creditor protection, which is really sad. So we'll see. Hopefully this isn't the, uh, the start of a lot more of these in Canada and hopefully investors will come to some agreement on how to keep some of these companies alive. But speaking of, uh, uh investors, uh, the biggest investor of all, Canadian government released their uh, budget. The 2023 budget by the federal government was dropped. I think it was a big flop. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But, you know, there were some highs and some lows for a lot of people out there. What do you think the, the read of this one is, Anthony? I tend to agree. I think largely underwhelming. I think outside of clean tech, there really wasn't much on the innovation economy, as far as I could tell. And even the clean tech portion was a little bit I don't want to say nebulous, but a little bit a little bit remote, right? It was mostly it was mostly contained in in tax credits, I believe, for project finance, but I don't I don't particularly recall. But by and large, underwhelming. I think they did a good thing with the again, if we veer a little bit away from tech, I think the grocery tax credits and assisting with cost of living, I think that's really important. I think you know, one thing that's really important to remember about inflation is inflation slowing down has means nothing about the damage that's already been done. Cause I would bet that most working Canadians haven't seen their wages go up by, you know, high single digits, high single digit percentages. And so in that context, I think that's really good. But as far as it relates to our industry, you know, not much, much to do about nothing as far as I can. Yeah. I mean, the grocery one I thought was a good headline, but when you looked at the numbers, it was like $9 a week, which is not really big. So I think they relabeled a different type of uh, initiative that they're just calling now the grocery uh, support. There was nothing on open banking. Uh, we've been fighting for this for a while. I know startups are all complaining about it. You at RBC may not be, but interesting that there's just nothing still happening on that side of things. What gives? I don't know. 
Can't comment. <laughs> no comment. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, there's definitely a lot of things in there that we're missing, and hopefully we'll start to see more details coming out uh, as the initiatives get rolled out. But uh, on a brighter side in the banking world, SVB found a buyer in Citizens Bank. I mean, what a steal by First Citizens. I mean, it seemed like investors loved it. They uh, acquired all of their uh, life science and tech loan book basically for free, and the stock was up over 80% the next day. So, you know, First Citizens has a reputation of buying troubled assets, basically getting the FDIC blessing. Uh, What are your thoughts on this one? Listen, I think good for First Citizens. I think probably good for its shareholders. You know, I maintain, I think the core SVB business was really, really strong. Um, I think the human capital there is candidly second to none. I think it's still a sad story. You know, as far as I can tell, it's that, you know, the SVB brand is being essentially decommissioned and it's tough. You know, SVB has been a fixture of the tech community basically worldwide for, for decades now. And um, again, it's, it's, it's hard to see, but you always hope in these situations that, you know, the human beings involved kind of land on their feet. And as far as I can tell, that's conducive to that. So that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I mean, I, I do agree the brand and the reputation of Silicon Valley Bank is going to be pretty sad to have it not be a part of a, a name fixture in the ecosystem. But but hopefully, First Citizen recognizes the legacy that that asset comes with and continues on the same sort of journey they were trying to do by allowing this ecosystem to really have a, a banking partner to rely on as they grow up the sort of capital structure ladder, if you will. Because we all know early stage startups just don't get treated the same way when they're dealing with larger banks uh, and they need a partner that speaks their voice when they need access to those types of products. Speaking of products, I thought this was interesting. Uh, well, Simple launched a private credit fund for retail investors in partnership, obviously, with uh, their largest investor, Cigard. And you know, allowing retail investors access to a private credit portfolio, to me, seems a little bit off where uh, a lot of investors are even thinking to put their capital right now. But given where interest rates are, Maybe it's a good product. I just don't know. Are they throwing darts at a board here? What gives? So I'm going to plead product market mismatch. I don't know if I'll be vindicated. I think it's a bit of a weird one, right? Like, I think it makes sense in an academic sense, right? Probably in this market as well. You go interest rates are rising. They're looking to provide alternatives to their to their customers. You go, yeah, private debt probably makes sense in a world where it's whatever, 6.5% prime. You get some yield on top of that. My view is, and I say this basically only as a as a feeling, is that the clientele of a wealth simple probably doesn't find private debt to be all that sexy and probably doesn't align broadly with what they're trying to do. I think something like, you know, veering into the venture space, for instance, like that's a little bit more wealth simply, I would think. But I don't know. Again, they probably know their market and their customer base. Uh, better than I do, but a bit of a bit of a curious one from the outside looking in. Academically, though, I think it probably makes probably makes sense. I mean, first off, they're saying you need to have a minimum of a hundred thousand deposits at Well Simple and must make a minimal investment of of ten thousand in the fund. But like, how big? Given that Well Simple has retreated back to Canada as their home base and given up a lot of the other markets they're going towards, how big can a private credit fund come from with all of the sort of small, medium accounts they have. I mean, I assume a lot of family offices that we talk to who have uh, invested in private credit funds for a long time are not storing a lot of their capital at Well Simple to begin with. Wouldn't you think? I think you're probably right. I think it's probably also a move up market for Wealth Simple, right? Like I think ultimately as they think about what they want to be when they grow up, I think you have to start thinking about can we compete with the banks and traditional asset managers or traditional wealth managers up market, which is honestly where a lot of the where a lot of the margin is going to be. And that's where they've always wanted to end up uh, from the very beginning is what I believe. They've had that white label product for brokers, for smaller brokers, not like the big bank brokers to use to help manage their own uh portfolio models as well. But yeah, I agree. It it seems like that's where they're trying to get themselves. Now, again, though, I don't know if that's product market mismatch, right? Like, again, I have $100,000 in liquid wealth. I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I put that in an emerging, emerging robo advisor kind of money manager. That's just me. I'm like veering in a weird direction. Yeah, I go. I guess like that begs the question is like, do we think the credit markets right now are the places where you're going to see the most alpha given that like, you know, there's obviously just so many people looking for credit, how are they going to get the best quality assets? Obviously, it's going through Cigard, and so they're white labeling that and giving it to their clients. But hey, maybe it's just another product to af- offer in the stack. Let me give you one more hot take. Young people don't care about credit. <laughs> they grew up in like 0% 
interest rate environment for however many years now. It's almost like it's like a non it's like a non thing. And they grew up in the world of crypto and hot VC and outliers and you know the extremes of social media. I think credit is just is way too sober. It's way too sober. It's way too systematic, way too predictable. As the uh, as the young kids call it, ZERP, zero interest rate <laughs> policy, uh, which is obviously funny because right now everyone's talking about hyperinflation and, and what this means for crypto. And obviously we've seen a bounce in Bitcoin, a little bit of Ethereum, but like everyone's thinking, oh, if this really happens and the US has to come in and print more money to save the commercial real estate market and all the other different credit markets that have uh, asset issues, you know, Bitcoin's going to a a billion dollars. But, you know, I don't think it's happening right now. uh, And I'm sure you don't either. But uh, thanks so much for joining us in the tank today for the news rundown. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Yatong Lee from 60 Degree Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Yatong. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. You know, Yatong, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on the venture capital markets these days and how venture funds like yours are assessing the investment opportunities out there. But before we get started, I would love it if you can give our audience a brief background on how, how you ended up in the investment industry and how you ended up in your current role at 60 Degree Capital. I think like many other VC peers, I started my career in investment banking when I was a fresh graduate. And uh, after a short time of very, you know, intensive working, I decided to move to Toronto for a master of finance degree at Schulich. During which, you know, I'm really happy that I found my passion in VC together with some like Schulich alumni. And we started like with a small fund to invest in venture companies. And 60 degree now is almost like seven years old. And I feel actually very privileged to have a chance to, you know, work with some of the world's most brilliant minds. And as a non-VC background person, you can imagine actually how hard it is to break into the VC circle. So for my journey is a very tough one, but also a very rewarding one as well. I think 60 degree like seven years ago was like a white paper. So I could really draw a lot of things such as, you know, building relationships, making judgment in, in helping the, the companies to grow. I think I'm very blessed that we got some early uh, like success, such as, you know, Schrodinger's IPO in 2020, which is an enterprise offer helping pharmaceutical companies to build modeling for the molecules and a few more. I'm exit and also like you know marking up our portfolio company etc so since 2021 I, I got pushed to lead the technology investment first for the firm so that's how i you know like uh, ended up in the in, in my current role like for a degree and so when you were at the shulik alumni you know making some of those early venture investments can you name off a couple of the ones that you made through the school alumni program one of the really first one is is schrodinger is is a deal that we invest in 20 19 is one of really the early companies that we've been involved in. And we actually got the deal from our uh, industry partner, which is is called Wuxi Epotech. And uh, they are like a, one of the world largest like CRO. And uh, they invest in Schrodinger like in the early days. And we were, you know, just keeping in touch with them. And they, you know, just like a really short catch up call. And we mentioned that uh, we're looking for some like interesting software investment opportunities. And, and the person was like, well, there's a company called Schrodinger. You guys should take a look. And then we started to, you know, speak to the CEO, Remy, and we got really impressed, like, by a few, you know, conversations. And then, you know, really short time, we just decided to invest. And surprisingly, after just, like, one year of our investment, we, we received email, you know, actually, like, a Wednesday morning. And the CEO is like, oh, we have some plan to be, be public. Do you have some time to chat today. And we were like really surprised by this early success. <laughs> you make an investment in 2019 and it files for IPO one year later. That's a pretty good uh, path forward in making some of your first few investments. But let's bring it back to 60 degree capital. You know, you guys invest in software, digital infrastructure, healthcare, and biotech, you know, as I've obviously seen on the website, you know, how did the fund get started and how has your investment thesis evolved over the years? Starting a VC fund is really not easier than starting like a tech company. You need to, you know, have an idea. You need to think about differentiation strategy. You need to hire right people, investing your resources on the right directions. So a lot of like similarities. So our differentiation is really positioning ourselves as a North American investor, you know, based in Canada, like closely working with the Silicon Valley guys. And when, when CC Degree like started, we were in touch with, with some like family offices in Canada, and, and they were looking for people to invest in the North Amer- American VC opportunities. In addition to actually to only invest directly, we, we came up with a differentiation that we allocate some capital or fund to 
invest in other mutual funds. So like there are several reasons such as maybe first, like making some close friends in the ecosystem. And also second, expanding our deal sourcing channels. And also maybe third, like sitting in front line to know what the investment trends what other top VCs are actually investing? They say a lot, but like you need to see what they're actually investing, you know, from their reports, from your like conversation with them. So after uh, many years of you know building the portfolio, we, we are now LP of like some most reputable like VC managers in the world, such as Slicebeat or like Andreessen Horowitz or like NEA Initialized, and we're glad that we have those close partnerships to help our direct investment program. So for CC Degree now, we, we invest in enterprise technologies and, and biotech companies like through you know two separate teams, and we spend a lot of time on both internal and external efforts. So internal means that we build our expertise like through you know active research, like market mapping, and also keep hiring talents to the investment team. Like external means like we talk to corporates to understand their innovation needs. And we talk to other VCs, including our GP and also non-GPs to exchange insight and also opportunities. We also keep in touch, you know, with our founders to add our value. And, and since we invest in enterprise infrastructure technologies, our team can be actually quite, quite geeky sometimes as we talk a lot of, you know, on data, computing, etc. And, and also since every VC sees us evolving, I'm sure ours will also not be, be the same like always. I think the one principle is just we keep trying to support the best founders. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you came up with a strategy to start investing as an LP in top tier valley based VC funds in order to start expanding your network and building relationships. And so, you know, you got into some pretty impressive VC funds, as you mentioned, like Lightspeed and Dreesen, NEA and Initialize, among many others. You know, what was it like? Did you fly down to the Bay Area and spend some time there networking? You know, how did you land on these specific funds to start building your network out in the Bay Area? Obviously, there is a bunch of top tier funds, but, you know, let us know how you thought about picking these ones. Getting access to those VC funds is, is not an easy job. When we first started, like we, we didn't really have the full resources to invest in top tier like VC fund in the Silicon Valley. So we, we took some time to build a relationship. So for me, I, th- I think even, even like for now, I still like travel very often to, to say Silicon Valley. Like I would say every month I have to be there just to, you know, talk to our GPs and talk to other VCs, talk to, you know, industry partners so that we can be in the circle and also be the, you know, like one of the participants in, in, the, in the Silicon Valley, you know, community. So that's how we gradually kind of like build our presence there and also uh, being closer to those like top tier VCs. And, and, you know, when we got access to the to the VC fund, I think like a couple years ago, we also got like very excited because it's like very hard. That sounds like a perfect way to start building out your network, obviously, in the Valley. But you obviously started to evolve into more of a direct investment program and obviously across multiple sectors. You know, Given that you are investing across multiple stages from Series A to IPO, how are you and your team able to do diligence such a wide range of investment opportunities? A skill set to really invest in early stage companies and also later stage companies are quite different. So that's why actually you can find people, you know, with strong product and also founder experience in our team since they are like covering a lot of like early companies did like due diligence work. Also, you will find, you know, people from like, you know, consulting, finance, or maybe M&A background in our team as well, because they, we, are, we believe that's, the, that's also like required to, to, you know, conduct like a very detailed financial and also strategic judgment for investing in like a very mature or like IPO ready company. But like, since no matter like, no, no matter like early or late, we are laser focused on software and also digital infrastructure investment. There are like still lots of like overlapping knowledge for uh, all the team members to share. And, and for example, we maintain like a very strong corporate network in North America and keep talking to key industry players such as Intel, Samsung, Salesforce, etc. And the industry insight they shared with us can be very helpful actually to both early stage investing and also later stage investments. And I think it's also maybe worth noting that we, we want to build a, like a full lifecycle investment firm, which is now restricted by the stage. So we think no time is the wrong time to invest in like good company. So we wanted to keep the options open. And when you're talking about speaking with some of the key industry players, like you mentioned, Intel, Samsung, and Salesforce, are you speaking to the corporate development side, the investment side, the product side? Where in the organization are you trying to get your insight here? Because each department may say different things. So we try to actually speak to, you know, different type of people from like a, like one corporate. So 
CBC, I think, is one of the closest, I think, partners we have for those corporate. Like, they already running investments, and we share deals, we share insight, and we learn about, like, what's their investment direction. That can really help us get our investment as well. And vice versa, like, if we have any interesting companies, like, you know, interesting product, we can share with them, and they can take a look. And they will push those, like, interesting companies to their business unit to do, like, a consulting session, just hear about, like, their opinions. Uh, so we also build a lot of direct dialogue with those business unit, like decision makers, like, you know, CISO or CTO, just to understand what's their demand, what's their like thought on the company or the investment that we are doing. So we can also like get a lot of like really deep insight from those people. So we're trying to build like different channels within like even just one organization, especially for a large one. Well, you know, today's topic obviously is how does a Canadian firm make its way into the inner circle to make those opportunities happen? So how did you guys start getting and sourcing opportunities to invest in, especially in the digital infrastructure space, which is a very hot area for cloud infrastructure and data infrastructure among the Bay Area VC funds? It's not often they let an outsider like you guys into these rounds. So how did you start sourcing those opportunities to invest in? I want to really mention a little bit more about like our infrastructure investment. So CC Degree really separate the infrastructure investment by cloud infrastructure and also data infrastructure. So other than the, the application layer, you know, boom cycle we had maybe in the cloud industry in the maybe past like 10 or 20 years, we need more innovations to, to make the underlying infrastructure more efficient and also flexible and also more reliable. So the software innovation is always like a like a spiral, like which means the application layer innovation and, and the infrastructure layer in, innovation take turns to to be the focus for the industry investments. So the log- logic behind it is simply as people need more powerful maybe pick and shovels when they realize they couldn't dig more gold with the uh, the current one. So when we started to invest in digital infrastructure space we started with, you know, mapping the industry to, to find out what are the bottlenecks for the existing infrastructure space and also whether those sectors are ready for innovation and investable. Once identified the trend and also the, the right investment direction, we start to speak with our GPs, you know, VC partners and also corporate VCs, KOLs, just to verify our thesis and, and start to source investment opportunities. We, we truly believe the innovation never stops, no matter when we are, you know, both our like buyer market. And, and that's why we uh, invested actually five portfolio companies last year across sectors such as, you know, edge computing, data privacy. Uh, we also did one in game, gaming infrastructure and we did one in cybersecurity and also machine learning ops, etc. Our team feels even actually more excited about the investment this year in 2023. And, and we are continuously like deploying capital together with our partner, especially with SaaS, you know, experts such as you know, you and also the Ripple team in Canada. So we're trying to build more exciting portfolio company in our portfolio in this year. Yeah, it's been really exciting working with you guys and looking at opportunities together. Obviously, with our focus on infrastructure and obviously developer tools, it, there's a lot of overlap between our thesis and yours. You know, but when you start to look at some of these direct investment opportunities, do you find yourself doing a lot of your own due diligence before you have a conversation with the GPs or the VC partners or the, even the corporates? Or are you gathering it from all of those parties and then filtering it down into your own thesis at the end? I think it's more like the latter one. So we, we take a very active approach to, to source deals. So it's more like a top-down process. So we identify trends and also find investment or investable like sectors. And then we go through the companies in those sectors and just gather all the information possible like through the public sources. And we also speak to like industry corporate and also like other VCs just to understand are they also like you know making some similar you know bet on the on the trend because we don't want to like invest in something that all the other people like think reversely. So once we have those like idea and also pretty confirmed like investment thesis, we just go to Pitchbook or like maybe Crunchbase just to screen all the companies and then we find our channels to to get connected. Before we taking any introduction call with any founders, we actually already like done a lot of research, a lot of like due diligence, understanding preparation just for like a like like a high quality conversation. So we we did, we did work before the before the call. Yeah, definitely noticed that as well before we've introduced founders to you guys, and it goes you know very much appreciated for our founders to know that they're speaking with somewhat experts in the area that they're building in. 
I also want to understand how this thesis, though, has evolved over the years. You know, you talk about investing in a bull market and now obviously entering into a, a bit of a bear market. You know, how has the investment thesis changed and how has your deal flow sourcing changed over the last few years? It is true that the technologies actually keep evol- evolving, but actually our under- underlying thesis actually has always been the same. Like, for example, we have been investing in develop- developer tools and also cybersecurity sectors, you know, since maybe like many years ago, as we believe empowering developers and also strengthening software development security layer is a fundamental building block. Like we also started to invest in like machine learning maybe around the same time as we think is also like a key building block to the next generation enterprise applications. So just thinking actually how ChatGPT can improve and change the existing enterprise workflow already actually make our team quite excited. I think for deal flow sourcing, we always do both like inbound and also outbound like approach, uh, approaches. And we, we call outreach, we talk to investor peers, we do top downs, we go to conferences, pretty much the sourcing channel you can imagine for a VC. I think one thing special about us is we also have a like a GP group to strengthen our deal sourcing channels. Uh, although we don't really take too much passive co-investments sharing from our, our GPs due to our like relatively targeted investment sectors, but we still do an active screening approach, which means we, we pick a few companies that from the portfolio, from the GP portfolio that fit into our thesis, and we keep catching up with the GP just in case there is anything we can be helpful. Having those GP relationships means a lot to us. It's like uh, you have someone that you trust with your capital, so you can share things and talk things freely. I think just between like maybe even 60 degree and also Ripple, I think we also did a lot of work and for the really great investment that Ripple like has invested before, I think there will be a lot of interesting things that we can work together as well. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because we do have some GPs invested in our fund who kind of, you know, want us to give them the heads up before a company goes out to fundraise or just as they go to fundraise. But I think the approach that you guys are taking where you're scanning the portfolio often and also reaching out proactively to the GP to get in front of the companies, even before fundraising happens, well before, is much more helpful from a GP's uh, ability to manage LP relationships but also managing founder relationships. Because sometimes founders are saying, well, you know, we're just about to start a fundraise. Why don't we just include those, you know, GPLPs in the process? But if you're if you're getting in front of it by, you know, a couple quarters, it actually helps build the relationship ahead of time, which is really important for the way that I think you guys do it. But let's talk about the due diligence process for a second, because you guys are investing across different stages. So making capital commitments must have different type of processes for different stages, I would assume. So what is your typical due diligence process like for making those capital commitments? We usually like start with an like introductory call to introduce 60 degree. I think just pretty similar to all the other VCs. And we also ask some high level questions based on, you know, our previous research since a lot of companies that we speak to are from our top down research. So we already have some color on the business. Then we usually actually request a company deck and financial numbers after the meeting and start doing deep, deeper due diligence or deeper research on the product market, you know, competition and, and team, and also maybe financing history, et cetera. And, and schedule like some more Q&A with the company after that, after we, we work on the on the materials and also research. So so typically, I think after this stage, we, we will decide on, you know, whether to do a preliminary due diligence dis- discussion with all the team members just or just to pass on the deal. Our, our principle is really not wasting everyone's time. So if we realize early that a company is not a right target for us, so we will just, you know, reject right, right away. If the deal got passed from our prelim DD session, we, we actually come to a stage which we call due diligence-like stage. And that means we will contacting our people like, VCs, corporate, existing customers, or, you know, potential, like, you know, consumer uh, customers as well, and, and industry KOLs, just to learn as much as possible about the investments. And the team will do a final due diligence, you know, session or, like, discussion just with all the details we got, like, from this stage, from all these reference calls. Then we can make, a, like, a final decision on the investment. That's, like, a really typical process we go through. Like, sometimes it can be pretty short, pretty efficient, like, just a few weeks, maybe two weeks. And sometimes it can be, like, like in pretty pretty long time if it's like a really complex and later stage investment. Yeah. And have you ever brought a deal to one of your VC partners uh, while you're looking at it first and then have them join in and actually co-invest with you or even lead the round? One really good example is our investment last year 
called Pragma. It's a gaming infrastructure company. So it's a really good example for our GP kind of like relationship deal sourcing channel. So we actually screen out, uh, so like the, this GP is called Upfront Ventures. It's our, one of our really close partners in the US ecosystem. They are based in LA and we actually pre-screened all the portfolio companies and based on our infrastructure investment thesis, we found, okay, like this company Pragma is very interesting. They're building backend system for all the gaming studios and an exciting trend uh, because the, the gaming studios like need some people to really help them to to figure out the backend stuff like they don't need to so that they don't need to handle like by themselves so when we found the company and we, we reached out and also we, we got connected with the with the ceos through our upfront like venture friends and then we started talking and we decided to invest actually after a few weeks of due diligence but at the time it's actually early 22 and the company didn't really have a plan to raise like a formal round. So just because of our interest, the company decided to to open actually like a small like a round just to to bring in some investors. We were kind of like leading the process and, and set up the terms. And we actually also brought top tier VCs like Greylock and also some other like Silicon Valley VCs in. So we led some process like that in before, but we still really trying to work with our, our partners to, you know, like maybe follow our like co-investing in some rounds. Leading investment take maybe 10% of our investment. Wow, I love that. You know, Canadian VC family office LP, you know, bringing together other VCs from the Bay Area for a California-based investment is a, is a pretty cool way to look at you guys. You know, but I'm sure that the early stage investments have a bit of a different due diligence process. You know, how are you assessing early stage investments uh, in venture, given how limited the data is compared to some of the later stage opportunities? We actually understand those two investments, two type of investments are quite different from each other. So for early stage investment, our expectation already got set at a pretty low level, like regarding the, the detail that we can get. Like, for example, we won't really request, let's say, audit financials for early stage companies. And we won't really make our decision based on too much on the metrics, such as, you know, metric numbers, unit economics, NDR, et cetera, just because it's too early for us to see like a stable pattern for the company in an early commercialization stage. So yeah, we already have like a much lower expectation on like regarding the details on early stage. So we can, we can still like make decisions on based on whatever we have. Well, at the stages that we invest at Ripple, at the pre-seed stage, there's even less data to go on. So <laughs> we'll make sure that when we bring an opportunity to you, it has a little bit more than what we get when we look at the company from a very early stage. But, you know, let's talk about the current markets, you know, and how it's impacting, you know, your fund's decisions on capital commitments. Obviously, I want to touch on what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank and the broader, you know, banking ecosystem. But First off, like, what are you seeing out there and how ugly is it for some of the later stage investors out there? The valuation environment actually has dropped like a lot, like since 2021 high you know, level. People who heavily maybe invest in the later stage venture in 2021 now is seeing some pressure on, you know, marking down their portfolio. But like for 60 degree, I think we were really not rushing our investment. You know, at the year, like in 2021, we, we always average our investment pace without really rushing or slowing any time. So we, we didn't get hit too much, you know, by the valuation environment change. And also for, I think, maybe also worth to mention for early stage investment, we, we actually have also been keeping our, our pace. We, we finished our fund two investment last year with a few new portfolio companies joining us, such as, you know, Marco Meta, which is a post-series A convertible note company. And... Um, Paperspace is a machine learning ops platform, which we invested also there pre-series B comparable node. So uh, I think for early stage investment is really not really impacted by the, the market environment change in the last two years. So we're still keeping our pace in the early stage investment and working with our high quality partners like Ripple Ventures just to, you know, like keep sourcing, keep investing. But for later stage is is can be like pretty tricky for for the last two years. Yeah, I mean, for sure, a lot of people are seeing all the, you know, the valuation cuts that are happening at the later stage where early stage is somewhat isolated. And a lot of those are also being done on maybe some safe notes or converts. So you're not really getting the same price on the mark to market side. But, you know, what are your thoughts on bigger names like Stripe slashing valuations by 50% to raise $4 billion? Are those kind of rounds even interesting to firms like you? Or are you trying to kind of hold back on getting brought into some of these really later stage rounds that are kind of happening at depressed prices from last year? 
Are you guys considering those in this kind of market? Yeah, actually we do. So I think for later stage companies, I think the current market right now is really a, like a testing period for companies' flexibility on, on switching, you know, growth mode and also profitable mode. Uh, the companies that can, that are actually maybe slow to switch, they have to raise money to keep the light on. I think raising money or raising capital in the current like market environment is is not an easy job like for sure and i th- i think companies need to manage their priorities to to make sure they can survive the market downturn but i think for early stage companies I, I think they can you know quickly grow into valuation so the impact is much smaller compared to the later stage ones so i i, I can't really disclose like what kind of like deal that we are looking at right now but i can say we are actually involved in a lot of like big names you know later stage company processes you know through our connections in the us we think we think some of those opportunities are actually very attractive and we will execute on some of them. I think this year, the companies, uh, later stage company already taking some step back just to lower down the valuation a little bit and, and putting it to like a more reasonable level. So it's, it's making the investment actually very attractive because fundamentally those companies are still very high quality ones. So if the, the price is right, the timing is right, like what, why, 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 why don't we invest, right? So we are still pretty active on that. Yeah, well, one of the deals that you announced publicly that's pretty exciting is your investment in DataGrail, which one of your VC friends at Felicis Ventures that we know well uh, suggested that you have a look at. Can you walk me through that thought process on that investment and what kind of returns are you underwriting for for an investment like this? Our VC friend Felicis Ventures suggested that we you know, have a look at DataGrail. We actually went pretty deep on the market to, to see where the opportunity was. You know, since after our GDPR was enacted almost four years ago, what first, you know, grabbed our attention was the, the rapid market growth, like, which is over 40% year over year, driven both by consumer pressure and also, you know, by emerging regulation. We think that California's, like, CPRA, which actually enacted, like, in 2023, uh, will be another major catalyst for industry growth and also will reinforce the need for platform like data growth for years to come. Second, what really surprised us was that many of the data growth con- contemporaries actually either tried to be an incomplete, like, all-in-one solution for privacy and also securities, or, like, they, they offer, like, an animate like workflow that fell to scale. Data growth approach to, to first like deeply focused on the automating data privacy resulted robust like tech platform that we believe like in the long term will all all compete their like closer like rivals. I think this platform in, enables the, the company to address the, the bargaining like mid, like middle market like for which like competing solutions are weak and, and enable it to adapt like a future regulation and new opportunities to more easily in the data privacy and security. For the return like target for data growth, like we actually typically looking for like 20% NR for actually all the all kind of like investment. For early stage investment, like it taking longer time, like maybe three years, five years or even longer, our TBPI return, our like dollar on dollar return can reflect the you know the 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 number and for IR is always around like twenty percent across the uh, the investment portfolios. Interesting that you have the same IRR sort of for early stage as later stage. And we we don't look at IRR obviously because the timing is so long for early stage. We try to look at it from like a total return of capital, so you know DPI, but you know TVPI in the short term. DPI in the long term, but I think we look at things somewhat similar. I think our LPs would say probably 20% net IRR uh, is somewhere where they'd like things to, to shake out at the end of it, but it's harder in the short term to really predict IRR. You know, I want to make sure we talk about what's happening in the market right now. Obviously, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, we're recording this after we've heard that the government is going to be stepping in. It was a pretty scary weekend. I'm sure you had some conversations with some of the VCs that you invested in, as well as the portfolio company of direct investments. You know, what are your overall thoughts on what's happening and how this will play out over the next little while for both VC funds, as well as LPs and direct investors like yourself on the VC industry? What a like crazy weekend we had, like, and, you know, when, when SVB, you know, issues started, I think like Wednesday night and also like getting into like Thursday and Friday, like we, we started to realize, you know, the, the situation could be actually much worse than we first expected. And then we started to, you know, reach out to our portfolio company just to, to ask them to, you know, either transfer some money to their other alternative like bank account and also making some preparations for like a potential collapse of maybe SVB. And so we, we started really early to prepare, prepare for this. But like even with that, we still 
got a lot of like pretty rush communication with the founders over the weekend, just trying to find ways to to really minimize the uh, uh, the impact by this. It's really good to see that you know on Sunday in in the U.S. FDIC actually stepped in and also pretty much like you know guaranteed all the all the deposits like are are safe. So then like our founders really took a relief on that. So I think. U.S. government is really actually made a pretty efficient and also right move on this one. I think they, they like we had a lot of lessons learned from maybe 2008. So I think this like this time we already like foresee a lot of like consequences if we don't really step in the early days. So that's good to see. But I think for the long term, I, I think this uh, the Silicon Valley Bank issue is not only for SVB, it's actually happening to to a lot of like banks like rising interest rate at this high pace uh, actually creating a lot of like treasury pressure for all the banks and also creating like having the uh, SVB issue also create a lot of trust issues I think for for like you know some centralized players or like even for for the for the system or community so for us we will just keep deploying our capital in the venture companies but like we also need to manage our conversation with our LPs just to make sure they are still confident enough to deploy capital in the VC like ecosystem. So I think that's the uh, the job that we need to do like in the in the next maybe couple months just to make sure this SVB issue can be you know transit like smoothly with our stakeholders. Last thing I really want to say like I think the Canadian banking system is so mature. I'm really proud that you know our Canadian banks are like very stable. Like just making all the appropriate like approach to make sure the depositor like money is like very safe. So I think being a Participant also in the Canadian ecosystem, I feel like we're proud, proud to, especially comparing compare the uh, like Canadian bank players like with the U.S. ones. Yeah, one funny uh, point I saw of someone mentioned is now people are going to ask in their due diligence process, what banks are you holding your capital with as part of a checklist of uh, due diligence questions to ask a startup, which was not really something you know we had ever had to ask. You know, most of our companies are either with the big Canadian banks or they're with Silicon Valley Bank, Comerica or, you know, somewhere else. But now I think it's going to be something people ask, especially for early stage US-based companies on where they're putting the capital they raise from VC funds. You know, speaking of lessons, you know, what are some of the other biggest lessons you've learned from all the investments you've done over the last seven years in both VC funds, as well as direct investments that other people should hear? Looking back for my last seven years investment journey, first one, I would really say, Maybe cherishing every opportunity to really pull the trigger. Doing VC investment is not is is a actually a very privileged like job. We're using investors' money, investors' capital to invest in some people's dream. So we need to be responsible and, and do whatever we can to to really make it right. I, I will add maybe like a second one. I will say there's no shortcut for VC. I think people can can get lucky for once or twice or even maybe three times, but they cannot like win just forever by, by luck. So I, I keep really reminding myself if I want to be like a smart investor, I just do what I need to do, you know, doing research, taking talking to the founders and, and learning like maybe new things, like going to conferences. There's really no stop sign ahead. You like I have to do whatever I, I have to do just to keep keep things right. Yeah, I'm really happy you say that because a lot of people think like everyone in VC is just rich and just, you know, throwing capital around to see what, you know, is going to be the next lottery ticket. But a lot of VCs don't actually know if they're going to be good at their job for at least 10 years. And if they have actually made you know a, a good amount of money, it's because they are good and they have been around for more than 10 years to even get that carried interest check. So a lot of the people who are successful in the VC world are actually just the LPs themselves and the founders. They're the ones who are the ones who see success first. And the VCs are usually the ones who see success at the very end of the journey. So I, I'm happy to hear you say that. And yes, it is a huge responsibility and a privilege to be able to take investors and LPs capital as well as my own capital and invest in someone's dream. But it also is a responsibility. And we have to make sure we do everything right to make that successful for everyone involved. So I, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Last thing to do before we wrap things up is always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Definitely Tank Talks. I, I listen to actually Tank Talks all the time. I think it's really good to have someone in the community doing this to really hear the voice for different like participants in the industry. Thank you so much, Matt, actually for doing this. I, I think like I will just keep listening and also getting my you know insight and knowledge from you guys. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, next is your favorite newsletter or blog. 
I don't really have a lot of time to really read all the newsletter or blogs, but I think uh, I, I, read, I read really the information every day is a pretty good newsletter that, that you know, I follow. And uh, I follow some venture capitalist blogs, such as, you know, Thomas Tungus or like Nikhil from Footwork and, and some other like really good ones. Yeah. Thomas from Redpoint and Nikhil Basu Travidi from Footwork. NBT is a great, uh, great blog to read. So good shares on those. Next is your favorite tech gadget. Does e-scooter count? In the wintertime in Canada? I don't know. Yeah, but I quite enjoyed writing that. Yeah, I quite enjoyed writing that. How far do you get on that? Like, what's the farthest you've gotten on your e-scooter? When I'm in San Francisco, I always always take e-scooters. I don't really take Ubers because San Francisco weather is is pretty nice. And I, I just doing that, you know, for ESG reasons. And also, yeah, it's pretty enjoyable yeah, experience. We are also investor in Lime, so uh, oh wow! <laughs> so it's good to contribute a little bit of revenue on that. <laughs> it is absolutely. Next is your favorite new trend. After you know ChatGPT came out, I, I just keep asking questions to ChatGPT. So fascinating to see how you know it responds to my questions. It's getting so intelligent right now. So that's something that I really enjoy doing. Like my favorite new trend right now. What are some of the most recent questions you've been asking it? I asked about like what answers should I give to uh, to your questions in this podcast, and <laughs> yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it's done like a pretty that. good job so far. Yeah, very. C- congrats, ChatGPT, on doing the podcast. Favorite book? Uh, I'm recently reading the uh, like Ray Dalio's like principles for dealing with the changing world order. is is very really good, you know, theory to just talk about like how the like cycle changes and like is just help me to understand like why you know, the, the word is, is like, is like right now. So yeah, that's the, the book that I'm reading, really enjoyed. Very, very relevant for today's uh, current situation around the geopolitical landscape. So great share there. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Right now, my favorite life lesson is just sacrificing your health for success or, or wealth isn't really worth it. So health is always the first. Health is definitely greater than wealth. Very much appreciated. And thanks for joining us on The Tank today with Yatong Lee, Managing Director at 60 Degree Capital. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.